This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get reward points delivered too. So they're ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. This podcast is sponsored by Magic Rock Brewing. Currently, you can get free delivery on all orders over £40 and 10% of all online orders by using our code of TakesThatChance10. Jackson's there, Billy Head! The goal, Chris Billy Huddersfield Town! The most famous goal of Chris Billy's life! Is this the moment for Lee Fowler? It is! Take your place in Division 2, Huddersfield Town! Rupi and Steve Simonson's boots now. He's missed. Steve Simonson clears the frame of the goal and collapses in a heap of tears. Huddersfield Town are promoted. Stephen Schindler has a chance to write his name in Huddersfield Town legend. And he takes that chance. Welcome to a special episode of Annie Takes That Chance. I'm your host, Brady Frost, and today we've got three lines on our chest and our world is in motion. Uh, so we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to talk about England with some Huddersfield Town-related fun frolics too. Um, but to do that properly, I need, a, I need a guest who can help me. So please say I'm joined by uh, Mr. David Hartrick, a man who knows England and town better than most. Uh, he's a podcaster with Uta Beer, as I'm sure you know. He's a writer. He's an in-ground uh, analyst for, at Town for Opta and author of several books, including Silver Linings, Bobby, Robbins, Bobby Robson's England, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, Dave, how are you and uh, how do you find the time to do all this and, and talk to me? Yeah, I'm very well. Uh, it does sound like a lot when you lay it out like that. I'm also covering for Stephen Chicken at the Examiner over the summer as and when he's off. So, yeah, it's busy. It's busy. <laughs> Well, better than being bored, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to have you today. Um, obviously, I know we, when listeners hear you, we're normally talking about uh, Huddersfield, but it's nice to talk to you about something a bit different, really. So um, yeah, we're, obviously, we're going to be talking about your book, uh, Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. Um, I suppose my first question, Dave, is 
what made you want to write this book? You've, you've talked about um, Paul Gascoigne before being your favourite player, but um, I suppose my question is, why did you want to write this book and, and why do you feel it was important to cover, cover Bobby Robson now? Um, I, th- I think the thing is that uh, to- people tend to think of Bobby Robson as England manager and they think really of two big moments, which was 1986 um, and the handball and then 1990, which was where he sort of earned his redemption. And I don't think people understand how um, packed his eight years in charge of England were, um, which is why we literally in the book, I, I go year by year, um, going through everything from 1982 when he took over and his first squad, he dropped Kevin Keegan and Mick Mills and there was an almighty fuss from Kevin Keegan about that. Um, but that was dropping the sort of England captain and vice captain out of his squad to uh, the sort of the various disasters through the 80s that he had to deal with um, as the sort of front face of the of the FA to two World Cups, one disastrous European Championship, um, several games against Scotland and everything in between, really. And I just, I think Bobby Robson has earned his redemption. And I think everybody thinks of Bobby Robson in a certain way. But I think it's also good to go back and understand what he had to go through in the 80s because the press coverage he got was absolutely appalling absolutely appalling i mean it was it was a vindictive campaign to to remove him and you put all of that in with the with the hooliganism with what was going on with english football at the time with with as i said various very high profile news stories around football it was just an extraordinary eight years so so while it's about bobby robson and it's about his england side and the characters in it it's also really about english football through those eight years no, and it's interesting. You obviously you mentioned the the factors of the backdrop of hooliganism. Um, you know, there was a lot of things happening at the time. Um, do you think, with hindsight now, this was probably the most difficult period to be an England manager? And um, do you think now that times passed, people give him a, a bit more credit than he had at the time? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I think the, the the single biggest factor in it all was that he was caught in the middle of a circulation war between the two biggest tabloids in the country. And both of them realised very, very quickly that the England manager sold newspapers. If he was on the front page or the back page, he sold news at newspapers. And the campaign of negativity really began as early as, as 1982 when he first got the job because the Sun wanted their man, Brian Clough, in. So by 1984, they were outside an England-Wales game giving out Robson out, Clough in badges um, which is extraordinary when you think about it but then the daily mirror was that they had a writer called nigel clark who was you know in his own words he was there to fry bobby robson um and it was it was pretty extraordinary really they started digging through his personal life and this is this book is no hagiography he was bobby robson was a flawed individual in lots of ways and he made lots of mistakes and we talk about the mistakes and they dug into his personal life and they found uh, he had had a, an affair at one point. But then it was open season and they there was another f- affair that was completely fabricated. A woman came forward and that, of course, made the newspapers uh, and the front pages not once but twice. And it was a complete lie. There was when they went to the 
1990 World Cup, the England players were accused of getting a hostess sacked for inappropriate conduct when she hadn't actually done anything and she didn't even get sacked. She was just moved to a different part of the hotel. It was just an extraordinary time. And when you've got people like the, the, the odious Kelvin McKenzie, who when he talks about that period, says that he never printed a lie. He just printed stories that later turned out to be untrue. I think that probably tells you all you need to know about the coverage at the time. And it, it was it was just vicious, absolutely vicious. And often, often an England manager's team is a reflection of the of the world in which it inhabits. So Alf Ramsey's England was was sort of post-war and very industrious and all about hard work, but then he had to go in the seventies when there was a little bit more flair required to go with all the all the hard work and Don Reavy couldn't get his head round that. Ron Greenwood tried and sort of steadied the ship, but Bobby Robson's England was really born out of turmoil. It was it was born out of a a decade of of strikes and hooliganism and sort of widespread un unrest at the government and yeah it was it, it was just an extraordinary time and the media played such a huge role in that and the, the coverage of Robson that it, it's it's almost a book about that as well if I'm brutally honest with you it's almost a book about the way he was treated. Yeah and I think that was what was really interesting for me because obviously you know that wasn't uh, Robson's England wasn't wasn't my time but um when we kind of look back at it now and the stories when, when you know, I was growing up, it's very much romanticised. Um, I think mm. it was really kind of surprising to, to hear that. Um, why do you think people have, again, I think this is why your book's so interesting. Why do you think people have neglected to remember that? Is it just, you know, a case of, um, again, hindsight or, you know, realising you didn't have what you had until it's gone kind of thing? I think the, I think the thing is there was, Robson was probably the only manager at the time who could have done the job anyway. So one of the big things was that Brian Clough was a fading force and he, he wouldn't have lasted anyway within the FA. Uh, Graham Taylor was too young. Howard Kendall didn't want it. Ron Atkinson didn't want it. Um, there, there really was sort of nobody else out there who could do it. And Robson had to dig in and when you have a tournament like Euro 88 where everything goes wrong but there are as you know as I explained in the book there are a lot of reasons why Euro 88 went spectacularly wrong like it did you you have to have an incredible amount of resilience and I think when people look back at the period now they just think about the football and they think well yeah okay we did okay in at, at Mexico 86 and we were we were cheated out of the tournament and there's a sort of manufactured sense of injustice there we did well at 1990 got to the semi-final um we romanticized that tournament to death for all sorts of reasons so I think they see that and they just choose to forget all the other stuff and I don't blame them I don't blame them but there was also a sort of revival in the 90s of this sort of this desire to romanticize hooliganism and I think for, for certain people they think hooliganism was just nice clothes and lots of lads drinking in a pub together having a laugh and it wasn't it was if, if you go back to 1985 for instance 
it was rioting, it was arrests, it was some very serious injuries. It was 16-year-old Ian Hambridge dying at Birmingham City because he had a wall pushed on him. It, it was Heisel. It was just appalling. And, yeah, a lot of people sort of choose to forget all of that and pretend it was a better time. And it really wasn't, because I don't know about you, Brady, but I quite like being in a stadium where I don't, fear that somebody is going to put a bottle through my head and I quite like being able to take my daughter to football games with me and not worry about her hearing a load of racist language or seeing a load of fighting and violence on the terraces etc and these are things that we shouldn't really under underestimate football still has a lot of problems but this book really is about where it came from and where it came from was was I think it's probably the lowest point in English football history, the 1980s. No, that's really interesting. I mean, personally, I enjoy all that, Dave. You know, the football's uh, not interesting enough. Of course, course joking there. But um, I, <laughs> that was a really poor joke. Anyway, um, I, I was, I was going to ask, because, again, maybe it's just my surprise when reading it, but were you surprised when you were, you know, researching the book? Obviously, you kind of... You, grew up watching Robson's England but when you came back to research it for the book did, was it surprising for you you know was was it were the memories different to, to how you'd remembered it yeah um I, in in purely football terms I watched an awful lot of uh I watched an awful lot of games for this and I watched an awful lot of bad football and basically the sort of Robson's narrative arc ends in 1990 with redemption. And one of the big reasons he gets redemption is because at that point, he's actually got a good team. <laughs> We've played some awful footballers through the eighties. And uh, I mean, there's a, there's a friendly against Russia at Wembley in 1984 that I think we lost two nil or three nil and they get booed off at the end. Robson had a load of beer thrown at him and it's staggeringly bad <laughs> staggeringly bad and i think my slightly childhood romanticized view of it is that england were always all sort of semi all right and they weren't they were they were half decent once they got going in 1986 and then really they'd spend the next four years evolving the team and get lucky because they discover well, they discover two players who who completely changed their fortunes, really, which is David Platt and Paul Gascoigne. So in footballing terms, I'd forgotten how bad some of the games early early on were. But in terms of, of all the other stuff, it's the newspaper coverage that you find really shocking. Um, some of the language that is used about, you know, there's a report about, Brazil's coffee-coloured footballers and all this sort of thing. It's just, it's a bit depressing, really, because the, the 1980s was a long time ago, but it's not, we're not talking about 70, 80 years. It is still what we would class as modern history. And there are some some pretty disappointing attitudes on display, to say the least, particularly early on 1982 when, after England's first game under Robson, which was a 2-2 draw in Denmark, which they were very lucky to get a draw, Robson reacted by he wanted to refresh the squad, but he also wanted to prove a point because England's under-21s had played four black players um, the night before the Denmark game, and they'd been roundly booed, and um, their own fans, their own England fans, had been nakedly hostile towards them, and they had cheered 
uh, when the ball had gone to a white player and booed when it had gone to the black player. So Robson's next squad, he picked six black players for the full English squad. And it there really was an element of, I'm, I'm not having that and I'm here to shake things up. And people forget how brave he was with, with stuff like that. Um, and some of the stance he did make against various institutions. So, so yeah, it's surprising might not be the right word, shocking, <laughs> really. And even right up until the end of the decade, 1990, there's some fairly... What if you saw a lot of the articles printed in 2021, there would be uh, uh, quite a lot of uproar about them, to say the very least. <laughs> so, well, yeah, yeah, that was actually my next next question. Really, I mean, I know we're kind of talking a lot about the coverage, but I think that was the the thing that stood out to me the most. Um, if that was to happen to an England England manager now, do you think it'd be tolerated, or do you think, like you no. said, there would be quite no, I, th I think there'd be a huge pushback. There was a pushback early in the 80s. When the Sun handed the badges out, there was a real pushback from various sort of television pundits and lots of league managers and the LMA rallied round a bit. Graham Taylor gave a, a very sort of forthright interview before. Uh, I think it was in the build-up to the FA Cup final. It was the Watford-Everton Cup final, I think, 84. And... There were people within the game who did who did push back, but you've got to understand that the tabloids at the time they they prided themselves on making and breaking pop stars' careers, actors' careers, politicians' careers, and they couldn't get Robson. They could they they couldn't get him. He wouldn't leave. He would not go, and that just kept ramping it up another gear. And I think. Our system is not perfect. I think there are still unconscious biases. I think there's still a little bit of unconscious racism in the system, if I'm brutally honest. But I think in a social media age, um, there would be a big pushback against coverage because it was so outlandish. I mean, after they, they drew it against Saudi Arabia in, in 1988, the back end of the year, uh, the the Sun did like a, a five page Robson out special, where it's it's just the car. It, it's a bit pathetic, if I'm brutally honest with you. You know, they've got Bernard Manning and Stan Borman doing their ten favorite Bobby Robson jokes, and um, you know, an article from a writer saying that they should crawl on their hands and knees and beg Brian Clough to take the job, and um, I, I forget is it Johnny Giles doing a column saying that they should bizarrely they should give it to Brian Robson even though he was still playing and you know not even a club manager at the time it's just it, it was quite laughable it's quite laughable and I think I think sometimes when you look at an institution like the Daily Mail or TalkSport or someone like that when they when they do something that reveals their bias or there is rightly a sort of pundit on or something who makes a pretty outlandish statement. You've seen the pushback to that. You know what happens. You've seen the sort of Twitter backlash, the Facebook comments, etc. And yeah, I just don't think it could be repeated because I don't think people have any understanding of just quite how bad it got at times. I mean, you couldn't just completely fabricate a story about a mistress now 
and run it over sort of three days and have the mistress claiming she's got a book deal and and her husband saying, you know, he's upset, but he's forgiven her and he's writing part of the book himself and all this. And it was just, it was literally fabricated, complete lies. And a newspaper just couldn't do that now. They couldn't get away with that now. So I think on lots of levels, it's just, it just wouldn't happen. Which is, which is good to hear, <laughs> you know, I mean, like I say, um, and for anyone who hasn't read the book, I'd encourage you because it's, like I say, it's very eye-opening. But um, I suppose we'll move on to a bit more of the positives with Robson. Um, obviously, you mentioned his, I think, again, how you've laid out the book is, is great because obviously you go through year by year and there's so much context behind it. And I think that's what makes, for me, when I was reading it, Italian 90 seemed that much sweeter. Um, yeah. for him what what do you think made Robson so special as, as an England manager I think he created a um, he, he created a castle with all of his important squads basically um, and that castle had walls that were six inch thick and nobody could get at his players he would defend them to the ends of the earth even if he knew they'd been truly truly rotten <laughs> he would still defend them because he had any, one of the reasons he stuck with it for eight years is because he just had an insane sense of loyalty, incredible sense of loyalty. He went through all of this. And when Graham Taylor was uh, in trouble, having followed him, he wanted to come back and do the job for free to help out. So he was just a, a sort of an, he had an incredible attitude to the England job. And his players loved him. You only have to sort of read any one of the various autobiographies and they all basically say the same thing, which was he, he was, he could, he continually forgetting names. He often said the wrong thing, often said the wrong word, but an incredible sense of football intelligence and they'd go to the ends of the earth for him because he protected them absolutely and completely. And when you got to 1990 and the hostess story came out and the England players decided to stop talking to the press themselves, it, it really was a point where they realised quite how bad things have got and wanted to rally round him. And I think his sort of sense of believing in people and seeing the best in people is just... It's incredible, really, that there's a story about one of the journalists. I've not put it in the book, but one of the journalists who was genuinely one of his most vicious critics through the 80s um, and openly admitted to making various stories up, actually flew out to PSV to do a story on what Robson's PSV side looked at, looked like, asked to speak to Bobby and... Bobby was, he couldn't have been more welcome and took him out for dinner, um, you know, just welcomed him with absolute open arms. And I think that's a complete mark of the man that somebody who has been a genuine thought in his side for years and years then caused him and his family genuine heartbreak. He will forgive just because that's that's just in his nature. And it's, it's partly from his upbringing and there, there are a lot of experiences that have gone into that. But I think when you come across those sort of people in your life, you do feel an incredible sense of, of loyalty towards them. Yeah, I mean, wow. That, that, like you said, that just that shows you the type of man he is. I mean, 
for you, when, when you were writing the book, um, did you feel, obviously, the more research and the, the more you were getting stuck into it, did you feel more affection for Robson the more you kind of uncovered? I, well, spoilers, but I sort of came from, I came at this book loving him anyway. <laughs> um, we, I did a book with a football writer, Dan Story, um, a couple of years ago called Portrait of an Icon, where it was a portrait of various football managers. And we did it because we wanted to raise money for the Bobby Robson Foundation because we're both huge fans and uh we we met we raised 36 grand in the end and I, what i wanted this book to be was really a sort of a celebration of his time in charge of england but also a recognition that he wasn't perfect he was just a bloke but he was a bloke working in he, he made the possible happen in in impossible circumstances i would argue and uh yeah, I, it was nigh on impossible for me to have more affection than I did, but I came out with probably the same level of affection for Robson, more for various members of his team, and less for the press <laughs> in general. So I, I think that would probably sum it up. No, very interesting. And I suppose you, you talked about the connection with his players earlier. Um, I think... Again, I think even those who, who aren't well-versed in England history obviously know about his relationship with, with Gascon, particularly in Italia 90. Mm. Um, was, was that, do you think that's one of the like true unique relationships? Because it is, I know this gets used a lot in football, but it does feel like a, a very father-son relationship. I think there are elements of father-son relationship in it. I think people forget how fleeting that relationship was. They they think it was you know played out over years and years and it and it wasn't and I think I think the difference with their relationship was it was it was it was earned between them when when Gascoigne first gets into the England squads uh, he was treated with a huge amount of caution because Robson and his team were well aware of the talent he had but they were they were very nervous of some of the other aspects of his game. Um, you know, famously early in his career, his first red card, he, he kicked everything in the tunnel and nearly ruined the dressing room. On England B duty, he'd received a yellow card, uh, which was almost unheard of in B games. In England under 21 duty, he received a yellow card, which was genuinely unheard of. You know, the referees didn't, issue cards so effectively it was a red card um dave sexton subbed him off immediately but they knew he had sort of dynamite in his boots and the first chance that robson gives him against albania like he told gaza to go in and play on the right so the first thing gaza does is goes and plays on the left then he plays as a striker then he plays as a, a sort of second striker slash what we call a number 10 now then he goes back out to the left. Then he goes into central midfield and he ends the game in central midfield. So it, he he came on and he was brilliant. It was an unbelievable cameo. He got he got an assist and an excellent goal, but it also not done 
anything the manager had told him and it was against Albania and they were already 3-0 down at Wembley. So there was a there was a, a, a sort of element of distrust there. Now he did, you know the famous Butcher game where mm-hmm. Butcher cut his head in Sweden? Robson brought Gascoigne into that game off the subs bench and he was far more disciplined and he was he was much better. But the game against Czechoslovakia before Italian 90, it's no exaggeration to say it was genuinely an audition, really. The Brazil friendly was Platt's audition, which he he passed with flying colours and he was straight in the squad. But the Czechoslovakia game was was Gaza's one and only chance to play his way in there. And he produces just a, a, a absolutely quintessential man of the match performance where the the ball to ball for the first goal his first assist is just outrageous he's involved in the next couple of goals and then he finishes it off with a, a really excellent run and finish and the camera cuts to the England bench and you don't have to be a sort of lip reader to realize that the first thing Robson says is that was fantastic and you think right okay well he's got himself into the side and over that summer, he just became such an integral part of the first eleven, but also of the squad off the pitch. He was a massive handful, but I think Robson loved him for that. I think Robson loved him because he was imperfect. He had all this skill in the world. And I think the thing that often gets forgotten is Robson genuinely believed he was leaving this job with the player in England's midfield who would win England the 1994 World Cup. You know, famously at the end of the the penalties, he says to him when he's crying his eyes out, Gazzy, you know, don't worry, this is only your first. And when you know what came after, it's it's a real tragedy, to be honest. So I think that adds another layer to their relationship. Um, And the last time Robson was seen in public was a, a charity game at St. James's Park when he was extremely ill, the cancer had taken hold. He could barely speak. He was in a wheelchair at the time because they'd had to um, do various surgeries that had left him paralysed. And they had to take him home um, before the end of the second half because he just physically couldn't be out for much longer. And the first thing he said to his son um, when he saw him the next day after his son had, had, had stayed for the game, etc., was how did Gascoigne play? So there was there was a genuine lifelong affection there and I'm not sure it was father and son it was it was something else it was almost on another level to that really it was it was like sort of you know stepdad and impotent child who eventually find a way to love each other and live with each other and then can't be without each other Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd not heard that before. That's that's amazing. Make, I'm a bit emotional in here. Um, mm. But uh, <laughs> I, I suppose I'm going to move on a little bit, um, Dave, because m- maybe it's just me trying to force this. But um, I think when listening to you talk about the book and obviously having a read, I, I, I think there's a few comparisons you can maybe make between Robson and Southgate. Um, obviously, they're both the only managers to lead England to a semi-final on foreign soil. But... Recently, obviously, we've seen Southgate speak eloquently about racism and taking the knee. And you mentioned about Rob's. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. 
That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Cosy, what, what's your favourite away day? Matt, it's got to be the city ground at Nottingham. Just old school stadium, you're right near the pitch, great atmosphere. But there's nothing like playing at home. Same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And how he integrated black players and he was obviously very vocal about um, the national front when they uh, attended England games in South America. Mm. Um, do, you, do you think uh, the, the similarities to them both in terms of they're quite statesmanlike in some respects? Yeah, I, th- I, think the, I think the thing is they both feel the weight of the job. They both understand the weight of the job and they understand that like it or not, you become essentially a spokesperson for the whole of English football, for good and for bad and for things in your control and for plenty that is completely out of your control. And I think Southgate's just a very impressive person. Whatever you think of him as a manager, whatever you think of his tactics, whatever you think of his bravery, that's a completely separate conversation. But in terms of just being a very impressive person and a real grown-up in the room, if we're honest, and it's it's... As a country, we don't have a lot of grown-ups in charge of important things at the moment, and I'll I'll just I'll leave that there before we get political. It's nice to have somebody who is such a figurehead and who does feel like a grown-up, and I think that is where the parallel is with Robson because Robson was having to apologise continually for the actions of fans that he loathed. You know, he was so anti-racist, like. Like he said, um, a, a journalist challenged him about picking English players and, and, you know, could black players be considered English? And he said, if if the seven best players available to me were English and black, that would be my team. If you don't like it, lump it, basically. So I do think there are certain parallels there. I think Southgate is... <sighs> I, I think he's more limited as a manager than Robson was because I think it's very easy to forget just how good Robson was. What the what he achieved with Ipswich was, I mean, it seems like insanity when you think about it in modern football. But then he goes on and, you know, he wins titles with PSV. He wins titles in cups in Portugal. He goes to Barcelona, who were desperate to get him there at the club. And they wanted to keep him upstairs at the club, but he was, you know, he was quite ill during his time there as well. He goes to Newcastle and achieves a sort of a level of hero worship again, having been spat at at that ground for dropping Kevin Keegan. Yeah, it's, I I think the, the two of them together, I can see the parallels. I just think Gareth Southgate is a very, very, and, he's a very confidently modern man and I think that's a very good thing to be in charge of the England team in 2021 and I think we had another confidently modern man in charge of the team during the 80s it's just it was a very very different time 
very very different time so yeah i do think there are parallels and I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that either because i don't think there are parallels with i i certainly can't think of another england manager i would perhaps draw that comparison with if i'm brutally honest before or since you know venables i i really loved in charge of the england side but venables was completely different he was just a he was just a motivator, you know, just a real, real motivator. His, his, he was a pretty sharp football brain, but not to quite the same degree. Glenn Hoddle was a very different character again. Um, you know, you, you work through the likes of of Fabio and Sven, etc., who didn't like the fact that they were sort of a spokesman for English football and and sort of fairly openly shunned that role as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think you're stretching it, mate. I think there are parallels. Oh, well, good. Yeah, that's that's what I needed, needed that compliment. Um, I suppose mm. with with Southgate, because um, I'll, I'll move on to, to England, because we'll we can have a little bit of Euros chat, because obviously it's just days away from, from the start of the um, Euro 2020 and 2021. Um, but, uh. um, how, how do you feel about Southgate as, as a manager going into this tournament? Obviously, you, you talked about his um you know leadership as a spokesperson but what about him as a manager um i th- i think he has limitations um but i'm also not sure there's anybody else i would want leading this this side into this european championships as is it feels like it might be his last um it it feels like for a couple of levels he he might go after this one. I don't I don't know that for definite, but it's just a hunch, you know, for good or for bad. My thing, and I've said this on other podcasts, is I I don't really want Gareth Southgate in charge of the England national team. I want him in charge of English football. I'd I'd give him the lot because he's he's got the right attitude. He's got a progressive attitude. And he's got a modern attitude and. I think we could do with a bit more of that if I'm brutally honest with you. And I I would make him FA technical director, put him in charge of everything as soon as the tournament ended, if I'm honest. But I think going into this tournament, my worry is that, and I think this is something that has afflicted many international managers, is that he's had so much time to think that I think if you look at some of his sides over the last 12 months, he's 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 chopped and changed a little bit and he's tried to be a little bit cleverer than he needed to be, if I'm honest. So my big desire for him is that he just keeps it simple because the level of players we've got is insane. I mean, to have Grealish, Foden, Sancho, this this is the the best England squad by any metric you want to use, I think, of all time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go on and win the World Cup or win this European Championship. But in purely footballing terms, I think this lot would be any England team from the past. I genuinely do. And it's not just because of the sort of tired old reasons of, you know, players from the 60s and 70s weren't fit and all that sort of thing. I think you look at the technical level of some of these players and it's just incredible, absolutely incredible. And I think we're only going to get better but I think right now, I, I'm not sure what's going to constitute success in this tournament because I think there are there, there's a there's an expectation from a lot of people that we're going to win it. There's an expectation from a lot of other people that we're going to get at least a semi-final. 
and this this is a tough tournament, Brady. This is there are a lot of really really good sides, and England are on the tough side of the draw, and they they could feasibly go out in their first knockout game. They really could, and I think a lot of people will will immediately write it off as complete failure. And I'm not sure it it is, if I'm honest with you, but yeah, who knows really. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point because obviously you talk about the draw and it is kind of hard to predict, seeing as like almost every team seems to go through in this tournament. Um, but yeah, like you say, we could play France at the knockouts, so you just you just don't know. I mean, I, I think there's a very real chance that we'll play Portugal in the first knockout game. And the thing about Portugal is their their squad uh, is. Their first eleven is up there with anybody in the tournament, even France. It's it's brilliant. They have a weakness at defensive midfielder where William Carvalho has not been in great form this season, and Renato Sanchez coming back from injury, and he he wasn't informed before that. But apart from that, they have a really good first eleven. They don't have a brilliant squad, so they don't have loads and loads of players to change it on the bench. But that first eleven is capable of beating anyone, and. I think that could be the first knockout game, England versus Portugal. And uh, I mean, England have not beaten a sort of an, an elite ranked uh, nation in a knockout game in any tournament since 1966. So that that gives you an idea of the <laughs> of the mountain that needs to be climbed there if if they're going to do well in this tournament, but. I, d- I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I'd love to play Germany because I think Germany have got some very obvious weaknesses, but I just, I can only see Portugal finishing second in that group. And if they don't, it's definitely going to be France, isn't it? And both of them are frightening, frightening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll see, you know, um, obviously, Went out, got over a big major milestone at the 2018 World Cup, winning a penalty shootout. So, uh, so who knows? Who knows? But um, how are there any players from the squad you you think will do well for England? Obviously, as a Brighton fan, you must be very pleased that Ben White got the nod in the end. Yeah, I'm genuinely delighted, and it's not it's not just the Brighton bias showing. I, I he is a, a like. There's no way we're going to hang on to him because he's 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 too good. He honestly is too good. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that he's got in there because if I'm brutally honest with you, would I rather see Tyrone Mings or Ben White play as things stand, having watched the last couple of England games in particular, I'd have Ben White starting any day of the week. So he's there on merit. You know, it's he's, he's not got lucky because <laughs> he's being linked with Chelsea, Man City, Man United and Liverpool now. Um but I think in that squad, I think if you look, if you look at all the usuals further up the field, so I think we're all expecting Foden to have a little bit of a breakout tournament, and I think I think he could do. I think you could be looking at a sort of Rooney Euro two thousand and four type tournament from him. I think Grealish has played his way in um, in the friendlies, and he's he's just. I mean, I just love watching Jack Grealish. I just think he's brilliant. But I've always, uh, people who, who listened to the England podcast I did with Chris Nee, um, 
will know I've I've been talking about Mason Mount since about I think about 2017 um, when he was coming through as a young player and he just looked something different and I saw a lot of him when he went on loan to Derby and nothing changed my mind he's just an incredibly incredibly mature midfielder and I I think he could become pretty integral to to England's fortunes pretty quickly in this tournament because I, I, a lot of a lot of these a lot of that squad are going to get minutes because of the nature of the season they've just had, which was compressed. A lot of games, there's a lot of players there in the red zone. So, I think everybody realistically, even though you've got a 26 man squad, I think probably 20 are, are going to be definitely asked to play some football. So yeah, everybody's got a job to do. But yeah, I just Mason Mount to me is just a really He's got the makings of, I don't want to say the words Frank Lampard because it just feels a really cheap comparison. And I, I hate comparison between players because they're all different. But at the same time, he could be Frank Lampard. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah, he was uh, thought to be uh, Frank's pet. But I think uh, since he's come in and done some amazing performances under Tuckle, you can uh, you can put that to rest. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's... Uh, it's a really exciting squad. I mean, uh, just talking quickly about the tournament uh, as a wider point, are there any kind of surprise picks or teams you think will do quite well that people are, are expect, um, won't be expecting? Yeah, I, th I think keep an eye on Italy. Um, they, that Nobody seems to be talking about them and they are... Mancini has got them very, very solid at the back. Um, they they score goals. They're exciting to watch. Do not come into it with the sort of mindset that this is going to be some like 1991 Serie A team. They are they they're really fun to watch at times. The thing about Italy, they've got their toughest game up first. Turkey are again, I think being severely underrated by a lot of people. They've got a really good spine, Turkey. Don't score enough goals, but very difficult to break down. And my only my only thing with Italy is I don't know if they're slightly mentally fragile, maybe. Um, so if they don't start well in that game, it, it, that group might turn out to be quite a tough one for them because Wales are Wales and, you know, they seem to thrive in tournament football if I'm honest and Switzerland are, are no mugs either really so but I, I like Italy and I like the look of them I like the fact that no one's talking about them so I can look smart if they do very very well if they don't then just forget I ever said anything but apart from that it's just it does feel like a tournament where the obvious sides are obviously going to do well because of because of the COVID season and how tired other people are and all that sort of thing. My friend Ryan Keeney thinks there'll be a weird winner. I'm completely the other way. I think you're looking at Belgium or France and there's a good chance Belgium or France could play each other in the semi. And I think it's whoever wins that game likely wins the tournament. But the, the only other one is, is I would just keep an eye on uh, the Netherlands uh, because I know they have an absolutely useless manager. Um, but I quite like him because he, I think Palace should have kept him because I hate Palace and he was rubbish there. Um, but they have got sort of low key. They've got quite a, a decent young core of players and they're quite fun to watch. So if they can sort of overcome De Boer in the dugout, 
they could be quite fun for a couple of games. And that that group, um, yeah, that group is is quite interesting as well because Austria are, are no mugs, North Macedonia and Ukraine are both being sort of completely written off. But Ukraine are, are decent, are decent. Um, Andy Brassel was talking about them on TalkSport the other day and I completely agree with him that you, you sort of take your eye off them at your peril, really. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think the favourites are going to win this one. I, I My price of a pint is going to go on, on France. And if I can split it, I might put it on Belgium. But that's hardly being brave, is it? Well, no, but I mean, um, it's hard to it's hard to argue with you, to be honest. Um, I, I suppose I'll ask you some quick... I know I've taken up enough of your time, but I'll... We are a town podcast. I'm going to ask you two town questions at the end, but I'll ask you some quick, quick fire Euros England related questions. So, yeah. first one: how how do you how do you think England will do in this tournament? I uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to be bold and say, do you know what? Do you know what? No guts, no glory. I'm going to be bold and say we get to a semi-final. How about that? I love it. I love it. I can I can hear three lines in the background, Dave. You've got me pumped. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I actually believe that, but I am going to say it and put it on record. That's fine. Just so we can play this when they, you know, lose to Croatia and Scotland in the first two games. That's all it's for. Um, what um, I've talked about songs. Um, obviously, I, I did promise to people tweeting this out. I wouldn't sing, but what is your favourite football or England-related song? Uh, a few years ago, I wrote six thousand words on um, how World in Motion was brought together, and the various people involved, and the madness behind the recording sessions, and why the idea came into being in the first place so if if i didn't say world in motion i would i'd never live it down i like three lions but do you know what i like three lions when it's being sung in a stadium but as a song world in motion kicks its bum completely agree there was a correct answer and you you've got a correct <laughs> answer there uh, <laughs> in my opinion um favorite england player of all time that's a nice quick fire question for you there. <laughs> there are two that stand out, really. I've got to go with Paul Gascoigne. I mean, I'm literally sitting in my office looking at a signed Paul Gascoigne shirt. Um, so I've got to go with Gaz. And I think people, it's it's impossible to uh, tell people how good he was and how exciting he was at that point um, because he just didn't look like anything England had ever had before. And there was a time in sort of 1990-91 where we genuinely thought he was going to lift the World Cup for us one day. And he was on a path to being the best player in the world. And people think, people laugh at that, but genuinely was. But unfortunately, then the wheels came off and, yeah, it becomes quite a sad story. The only place, the only player who gets close to him in my affections is actually David Beckham, who I, I, I adored in an England shirt because he just, it didn't matter whether it was a friendly qualifier or tournament game. He just played exactly the same and gave absolutely everything. And I think it's, I think it's very easy to laugh at David Beckham or it's very 
sort of trendy to say, oh, I didn't, I don't like him for whatever reason. But he, he was an incredible footballer for England. Incredible. I completely agree with that. And uh, I know it's obviously well versed, but the uh, Greece 2000, you know, two qualification mm. game, I don't think I've ever seen one player drag a whole team through. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was incredible. I watched that in the uh, Penn and Cobb in Huddersfield and we went absolutely crazy at the end and then celebrated by going into Merry England and having a turkey club with no mayo because I don't like mayonnaise. Wild times, Brady. Wild times. I mean, times. That, you do remember, <laughs> that's what Southgate was saying, you remember where you were and what you did. And to be honest, yep. having a Merry England, I think that's a good way to uh, to top off a good England match. Um, Favourite player from the current England squad? Would it be Ben White? Right. A favourite player from the current England squad is Ben White, but that's not really fair because he's only just been brought in. So if you, if I'm doing it fairly, then I, I, I've already sort of lavished a bit of love on Mason Mount. I would say my favourite player. It's a toss-up between Foden and Grealish, and I would, I would probably go for Foden because I, I do when we talked about comparisons between Southgate and Robson, I do think there are comparisons between Foden and, and Gaza as well. Just the way they play, the fearlessness, uh, the sort of style, the embracing of the England shirt as well. Um, I, I think that lad's going to be special. I really do. Yeah. And uh, of course you've bleached your hair blonde as well, Dave, haven't you? In, uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm in that. I'm 42. I'm in that stage of my life where I'm still quite happy because I've got a full head of hair. But like, if somebody said shave it off tomorrow for charity, I wouldn't because I'd be scared of it nothing never coming back. So the idea of like bleaching it or do anything like that where I might lose lose a chunk, no chance, no chance. Well, I agree with you. Um, when I was at school, um, just a, just a quick one, because I'm sure the listeners would love to hear this, but um, blonde streaks were a thing at my school. And uh, obviously ginger hair, blonde streaks, um, look like cheese string, Dave, when it finished. It's all, all I'm say. So, uh... I, I must, I had a spell in the early noughties of Phil Neville style frosted tip highlights. And <laughs> Really? Yeah, and I'll level with you. I pulled them off. I look good. <laughs> We need photographic evidence of this, or have you burnt it all? No, there's plenty. Trust me, oh. there's plenty. Oh, I need to. I need to see this. Okay, so um, we'll end because obviously we are a Huddersfield podcast. So I'm going to end with these two town-related questions. Um, so, which town player from the current team do you think would be most suited to Bobby Robson's England, and why? Uh, do you know what? Um, I tell you who immediately springs to mind, and that's Harry Toffolo, um, because the the left back position was um, was Kenny Sampson's for a long time, and Kenny was a very dependable presence in that England team, but he wasn't sort of he wasn't stellar, he wasn't great, and Stuart Pearce came in at the end of that time, and Stuart Pearce like. Listen, we all love Stuart Pearce, but Stuart Pearce did a certain thing on that side of the pitch, which was just frighten the life out of whoever he was playing against. I, I think the sort of intelligence and the fitness of Harry Toffolo would slot in very, very well there. I think the problem is everybody's expecting me to say Lewis O'Brien there, but England had Brian Robson 
who was sort of Lewis O'Brien on speed. I mean, could have been literally, who knows? It was the 80s. But he it was, it would be tough to drop Robson, really, for O'Brien. So, yeah, I've, I've got to say tough. I think, I think that's a solid answer. Um, and then, yeah, my final final uh, question, uh, which is also town-related, is if you had to pick one town player to get a surprise call-up to Euro 2020, let's say someone drops out at the last minute, uh, who would you choose and why? Would that be tough or would you go for someone else? You'd have to say it's between Toff, Lewis and Fraser Campbell, isn't it? No, I'm only saying that to wind Cozzy up. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say Lewis O'Brien because obviously we all know, <laughs> we've all watched that lad now for long enough to know that his ceiling is pretty high, pretty high. He's certainly, <laughs> he's, uh, he's certainly got Premier League in his near future, <laughs> hasn't he? And who knows after that, really? So... Yeah, I I think Lewis, though I am a big admirer of Toff, you know. I really, really like him. And I think Toff reminds me in a lot of ways of Frank Lampard in that he does the basics really, really well, but he just works insanely hard at everything else. And he just keeps improving because you know how hard he's working to improve. And I I think that's such an admirable quality, really. So, yeah, it's... It's tough, but probably Lewis, probably Lewis, or Fraser Campbell just to wind Cosy up. See Fraser Campbell, you know, bring the bring the good vibes. Not not Jonathan Hogg, you know. Every team needs a bit of a, a I, battler. I love Hoggy. I absolutely love Hoggy. As people know, I've written in the Examiner about Hoggy how much I love him. But I, I think the the thing is we've like. I'm trying to think it probably in way too practical terms and I'm trying to think what where he would fit in that England squad and I'm just not sure he fits in anything like a Southgate system. That'd be great to see him in an England shirt, wouldn't it? There, yeah, definitely. I remember um, there was a couple of town fans who said he, when we were in the Prem that he should get an England cap, which I, I think, uh, you know, I, I also love Jonathan Hogg, but I think that was a bit bit of a stretch is that what you're saying <laughs> i think yeah i he's like i don't mean this in any sort of disparaging or insulting way but he's a bit of a throwback footballer you know he he would have he would have absolutely loved life in the 70s and 80s on the football pitch where to be frank you can just get away with a lot more um but the international football and knowing how keen international refs are you just it just screams of booked after eight minutes <laughs> And then having to having to play within himself for eighty two minutes following to me. I mean, to be honest, that's that's kind of his style anyway. So uh, sometimes, <laughs> so. fair enough. Yeah, well, Dave, true. Uh, thanks. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so, listeners, if you don't follow Dave on Twitter, I'm pretty sure you will do anyway. But it's at David Hartrick and. Um, Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England is available via Pitch Publishing, and it's on Amazon. So. Um, it's just been reduced, hasn't it, Dave, on Amazon? I'm, I'm yeah, you. it's uh, and nobody knows why. <laughs> it's eleven ninety nine to buy the book, and for some reason, Amazon have taken upon themselves to reduce it to I think it's eight pound eighty nine, which is a fairly bizarre price point. So yeah, get get on it. I mean, I I don't like Amazon as a business model, but can't knock that for a bit of value. <laughs>
well there you go so that we've got the plug in but genuinely it's a great book um particularly i know we've got some younger listeners i think it's fascinating because i did grow up around that time so i'm not uh being that guy who plugs it for the sake of plugging it but i would genuinely recommend you uh, giving it a read particularly how we're all getting a case of euro fever but um <laughs> dave thanks thanks so much for coming on and um, no 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 thank you mate thank you for inviting me no that's great and uh, yeah here's hoping we'll um We'll be chatting next time we chat. We're talking about a great England, uh, England summer tournament where uh, you know football did come home. We will, we will see. <laughs> yeah. There's a team. That is dear to its followers The colours are bright blue and white They're a team of renown They're the pride of the town And the game of football is their delight And all the while Upon the field of play Thousands loudly cheer them on the way Often you can hear them say Who can beat the town today? And then the bells will ring so merrily And every goal Shall be a memory So town play up And bring that cup Back to Huddersfield So town play up And bring the cup Back to Huddersfield The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Lads, what's your favourite 90th minute goal? Got to be Heffley against Leeds. A shot from Moy and sliding in at the death, Michael Heffley. Great finish to the game. Shared with my family, only made better by ordering McDonald's via muck delivery afterwards. Three points, nut nugget share box, spot on. Order muck delivery now by the McDonald's app. You in. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.